I'm Morgan. I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. Sex workers. Algorithms. K-dramas. Challenging textures. Bad moms. Bad dads. Money. Teslas. Mm. Lingerie. The Silicon Valley. Men's underwear and who buys them. Most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we're talking about The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. This book was all a buzz last year. It was like the thing. And part of the reason why I think it got a lot of attention was A, it's super adorable cover, but also the premise. Would you like to do the premise, Morgan? Yes. So a woman on the spectrum who works as an econometrician, her parents say that they want her to bring a date to this upcoming fundraiser that they're hosting. And they actually want her to go with her work colleague, Philip. But our heroine, Stella, she's like working late one night and then the co-worker that her parents want her to end up with starts giving her a hard time. He asks if she's a virgin. She says no. He says, how many times have you had sex? Three. And she doesn't want to admit that that's true. So she says, I'm not going to tell you. He's like, you should get laid sometime. Blah, blah, blah. You know, just like cool, normal co-worker conversation. Yeah, not rapey at all. And she decides that he's right. If she could get good at sex, she would probably feel more confident. But how is she going to get good at sex? She needs like an unbiased teacher and she needs someone who she can feel safe with because there's not all of that emotional baggage. Cue our male escort hero, Michael. They fall in love. Prior to them falling in love, they fool around and then she's like, I don't just want you to teach me how to have sex. I need a full on practice relationship because sex is such a huge barrier for me or whatever. He agrees. She's going to pay him like $20,000, $50,000, which is good for him because his mom has cancer and his father is a con man who is in prison or missing somewhere. Missing. And he's also got five sisters. Sisters or so something. many sisters. He's got like a lot of obligations. So he's like $50,000 sounds cool. And so they start actually dating, but saying it's not real. And then they fall in love. And then he's like, you don't want to be with me because my dad was a con man. And she's like, you don't want to be with me because I'm on the spectrum. Even though he already knows she's on the spectrum because of this whole scene in a nightclub and his cousin. I'm really good at summarizing. No one actually cares if your dad was a con man. No one's going to break up with you because of that. That's so weird. And so anyways, they end up together. Wah, wah. Wah. Because she creates a fund that's going to cover all of his mom's cancer medical bills and like too little too late because now his mom is suddenly better. So she creates all of the conditions in which he can stop being a gigolo and then they get together. For reals. And that is the Kish Quotient. Where do you want to start? Why did this premise make it popular? I think, I mean, that's a ridiculous question. It is a reverse pretty woman. Which is a perennially popular film for reasons I cannot figure out. You don't like pretty woman? I do not. I just... Us rewatch Romeo Michelle's High School Reunion. A movie I love. Are watching Pretty Woman to make fun of it, and mm-hmm. then Lisa Kudrow's character starts crying. She's like, <laughs> I just think it's nice when they start being nice to her. Sure, I like that part too. But like the parts of Pretty Woman I like are all the parts that are already in the Pretty Woman trailer, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I like the part where she goes back to the store and she's like, big mistake. Love that, and I love it when you notice how none of the good parts of Pretty Woman have Richard Gere in them. Right, exactly. Except he's not when that he great. Eats her pussy on the piano. Sure. That's fine. 
fine. But yeah, like I don't like his rescue of him like climbing the fire escape even though he's afraid of heights or whatever. I don't like... Oh, I don't even remember that part. That's the very end. I remember the bathtub. Mm-hmm. I remember the shopping. Mm-hmm. I remember the polo. Yep. I remember... Oh, the polo's good. I remember her pulling different condoms out of her boots and yep. giving like a lecture on what all Safe their sex. merits are. Mm-hmm. Their different merits. Yeah, basically the trailer. Like the two and a half minutes of Pretty Woman, that is that. The makeover with the hotel maitre d' who like mm-hmm. snaps the escargot slippery little suckers. Yeah, everything everyone likes about Pretty Woman and yeah, none like of it those. involves Richard Gere. Yeah, or the mean guy from Seinfeld. I don't even know. <laughs> he hits her because she won't have sex with him. Oh. And then she's like, do they all take you out of school? And like, this is the part that stuck with me. Do they all take you out of school in the same way that they took us out for like our periods? And do they all teach you how to hit women? And I remember thinking, shit, I remember being separated from the boys when they talked about like our changing bodies. Mm-hmm. Is that something that they would have talked about? And I was like, no. And I remember the boys, like I got my friend, let me look at his pamphlet and mm-hmm. they got to talk about sexy stuff, like wet dreams. Mm-hmm. And I got like a tampon and yep. the weirdest explanation of how it worked. Oh my God. We had like this little old lady. She had to been like 107. She came wheeling in with like a library cart and she had quarts of blood. And she's like, this is how much blood is in your body all the time. And then she's like, here's the little vial of how much you lose when you have your period. So you might become a little bit anemic. And then she explained what, what anemic was. <laughs> and she's like, but it's not going to kill you. <laughs> I remember being like, I actually don't have that much blood in my body. This is a surprisingly little amount. Well, you were little people. What grade were you in? Fourth. Yeah. Just around the corner. I remember that video we watched. I remember an adult Annie from Little Orphan Annie had a video from like 1977. And that's the video we watched. Wow. This is fascinating. Fourth grade was weird. My period video looked like an ad for one of those fancy rehab clinics. Nice. In Los like Angeles. Horse? Pathways or what up? Passages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Horses on beaches <laughs> and like big sweaters and like elegant blonde cowlicks blowing mm. in the wind. Mm. I do love an elegant blonde cowlick. And like scrunchies. Mm. Scrunchies for days in no, period videos. No, it really videos. looked like a Passages ad. That's nice. But boys got to talk about sexy stuff. They're like, well, you're going to see stuff and it's probably going to make you very turned on. And mine was just like, you're going to bleed from your vagina. Yep. Which is different than your pee hole. Don't explore. But like you got different spaces down there. Look at this cartoon body rapidly growing pubic hair before your very eyes. That's you, baby. That's you. Are your nipples sensitive? (laughs) Don't touch them. Don't touch them. (laughs) Leave them alone. That's meant for feeding babies. And meanwhile, the boys over probably like, your nipples are going to get sensitive and uh, just go to town because what other job do they have? You're going to want to touch them. You're going to want to think about them. just gonna want to flick them a little bit just like go nuts go fucking buck fucking wild bros bro my bro you're gonna come without even trying (laughs) for years wait until you do it on purpose (laughs) it's gonna blow your fucking mind even if they don't teach them how to hit women like they play rock music it's like they're playing Bon Jovi (laughs) it's like like that white like me sketch that Eddie Murphy did if we dressed like men like little boys and went to that meeting they would just be like passing out martinis no one told me about masturbation or orgasms. Oh, God. I talk. Me but neither. But boys discussed masturbation and ejaculation. They definitely talked about masturbation when they separated us. And we stayed separate until seventh grade health. And then we yeah, combined. Same. 
They never talked to me about masturbation. We or only the talked about orgasm. male masturbation in seventh grade. When I think about that, and again after seventh grade, all of my health classes were taught by men because they were our gym teachers, mm-hmm. and the gym teachers and the football coach, memorably, was teaching ninth grade health class. Here's a really good story about rural Wisconsin. <laughs> coach Gray, football coach, old as dirt, has a bulbous red nose, is an alcoholic. We all know this about him, and he has this amazing refrain in health class where we're doing drugs and alcohol, and then we spend an entire quarter on sex and he's like I'm not gonna tell you not to do it because I did it when I was your age and like look at me now and we're all like (laughs) and then he just stopped coming for weeks and we're like oh my god coach he sucked himself to death (laughs) coach is dead coach is super dead like he had a heart attack or a coronary whatever happened coach gray is dead and then he came back on work release because he had his fourth DUI in a year and was back and was in prison and was allowed to come to the high school to teach the children (laughs) health and sex ed on a limited work release. (laughs) (laughs) Think about that. Think about that. It is to find a gym teacher (laughs) and football coach in a rural fucking town. Why don't they just like walk into a barber shop, <laughs> pull someone out of the chair and put him in there? That's basically what they did with this guy. It's 100% what they did. You think that he was awake during work release and not calling his lawyer while he was supposed to be teaching us? Tales from rural Wisconsin. Wobegon. Like Wobegon. Like Wobegon. That was a weird year. I think about that sometimes. We thought he was dead and then he came back from jail. <laughs> no, kids, it's fine. I was in prison for my fourth DUI. In a year. I gotta go back later. It's fine. It's after four o'clock. They're Let's gonna come to chlamydia. collect me. Let's talk about chlamydia. Yeah. Anyway, so that's the sex ed that I got. No masturbation, no orgasm, and certainly nothing about the LGBTQ community. No, and like absolutely Their bodies. Not. No. Or things that they would find pleasurable or like ways to... To communicate. You know, I do feel like my sex education was sufficiently vague so as not to be exclusionary. Oh, that's nice. Ours was <laughs> like strangely specific and hetero. Although maybe not that strange considering the source. And uh, there was a really long chapter on intimate partner violence. Oh, that's nice. It was. Coach Gray was really serious about that. He was just like, if you hit a woman, Satan's going to come and eat your face. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. What about me? Another lady. <laughs> no, you're no, fine. You're fine. Women can't hit and they not- don't. Don't really? do that. Men and women are trained differently. Certainly in the public schools. Oh yeah, we started talking about pretty woman. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea of a reverse pretty woman. So it's interesting, putting the heroine on the spectrum was the author's way, according to her interviews, of fixing the problem of why would an attractive woman go to an escort? Yeah. Is this the only reason? No, this is not the only reason attractive, <laughs> successful woman would go to a male escort. You know, I've got to say, I feel like this was a very generous read of male escorts. There's this great Vice special on Slut Ever, which is a really great blog about sex. A blog I enjoy. I don't don't call me on that. I haven't read it for a while. Stuff might have gone off the rails. But she had this thing where she was talking about happy ending massages and how a man can go and get a massage and then also get a guaranteed orgasm. And mm-hmm. she's like, so what's the female equivalent? Like, what is in it for the non-sex working woman when sex work is made legal? Besides the simple fact that I believe that legalizing sex work allows us to elevate all of our workers' rights and especially as women. Anyways, 
also makes everything safer. Right. But she would go to these men who like claimed to be sex experts. She like hired a gigolo. She went to this guy who was like a sex organ massage therapist. And he was like, I'm going to open your yoni or whatever. And she was like, can you promise me an orgasm? And they all had the same response of like, no. But it wasn't just no. It was, I think that's up to you. Mm-hmm. Which is like this thing where in second wave feminism, there was this idea of like, you've got to take responsibility for your own orgasm. We're acknowledging orgasms now. You've got to give yourself an orgasm because a man's not going to give you an orgasm. <laughs> that has been adapted by the third wave to be like, that's on you, babe. Beb, Beb. <laughs> That's on you, babe. Well, I think it's because everyone's like, orgasms aren't just physical, right? Like, orgasms start in your brain is a thing that I've read a lot. But it's that's like, also horseshit. Exactly. <laughs> it's like clitoral stimulation doesn't begin in my brain because if it did, sometimes when I'm like jiggled correctly in a car where my seam hits my clitoris, I'm like, oh, oh I could do that some more. It's like a nervous system reaction, just like everything else. Women might be more resistant to it because we're taught more shame, but I'm pretty sure, according to pornography, actors, male actors, they can also not have an orgasm because of a mental block. Totally. That they have like self-instituted so that their job works out well, but like it can happen to any sex. Right. If there was a guaranteed orgasm, do you think more women would seek out male sex workers if we hadn't been told like our orgasm is on us? Because men are told they can masturbate all they want, but it's better with a lady and they can get it every time with a lady. Oh yeah. And it doesn't matter if the lady comes. I think if we had that same framework Yeah. And that's one of the hangups our heroine has is that she wants to be good at sex for him. Right. And our hero keeps being in his own head about like, no other woman has ever felt this way about me. No other woman has ever cared about me getting off. Everything's been transactional. And I'm like, that's the job, Michael. But also, I don't believe that. I believe that the women who become obsessed with him and buy him cars care about him getting off probably more than he cares about getting them off. Yeah. Because for them, it's not transactional his ability to get off with them like if a man does an orgasm with you what have you done wrong yeah exactly yeah but like earth shattered right and it's never the other way right Mm -hmm. where it's like oh you didn't come tonight i guess you're really worried about your job or like you're really worried about this you're not feeling good in your body and it's like yeah or maybe like what did you not do yeah where did you fail me yeah i think that's a fascinating move and you're right stella begins this journey not for herself it's entirely a because of her parents and then b her potential next suitor. Mm-hmm. None of this is what Stella wants. No. Except it's the weird like wraparound of want where it's like, I want to be good daughter. I want to be good. Yeah. Which is like Wrap a Wraparound weird... of want is exactly right. That's always such a weird mind fuck too because like that desire is true and earnest, but it's not spontaneous. Or like, I guess like organic would be the word. I don't know. It's the kind of wanting that it feels too close to like coercion. Yeah. It feels like, well, I mean, it feels like living for another person. Right. Which is what romance novels ultimately tout as the ultimate most perfect relationship. I guess there's like these weird points of disconnect for me where I'm like, I don't believe his other clients were just using him. I think Michael has a real inflated sense of not self necessarily because he has a really bad self-esteem. He has a misunderstanding of women. Yeah. A fundamental misunderstanding of women. And like our lived experience, Mm -hmm. which I mean, to put in a nutshell, like my sexuality has always been framed for me as something that happens at the expense of male sexuality. I should degrade and objectify and manipulate my body in order to achieve something that men have always been told is inevitable anyways, their own orgasm, while my orgasm is... A Pandora's box that's impossible to untangle sometimes. Well, 
it's just like good if it happens mm-hmm. and like it is ingrained in you from a young age that sometimes you're going to fake your orgasm so that you can just go to sleep oh my god yeah which is true but also like so toxic but like why do I have to fake why can't I just be like hey it's not happening and I'm tired and I've decided being tired is more important right now yeah I don't even remember how young I was when the idea that like you would fake an orgasm to bring to a swift close something that you weren't into anymore but I was yeah. really young really young like to the point where you can tell something has entered your life from a young age and been pervasive when you can't place it right off the top of my head I can think of like three or four movies that confirm that for me before I was 16 I can think of like a number of like other things yeah and I can also remember thinking but if I set the stage of that lie I'll have to continue it and there's like yeah there's like no rupture right it's always already yeah like it's impossible that a woman would be like now that I'm in my 40s and I hate my husband and I've got all this money I'm gonna seek out a young stud to use like of course you can like see someone a man for his like sexual beauty but you don't see it as like oh he's gonna make me come look at his physique it's perfect for getting me to orgasm like no it's like look at his physique if he likes me and if he comes because of me that means that I am equally hot to him and I have an equal amount of sexual cachet as he does and maybe my position in this world isn't as bad as some other people other women specifically specifically like that's what it is like and I totally buy the hero having this belief but I also I'm not sure that the text understands that I think the text genuinely believes that these women are in spite of all of the things they do for him I think the text genuinely believes that they are just trying to get fucked but I think like that's also wrapped up deeply in the way that class politics then play out in this novel where it's like those women are careless with his feelings because they're careless women because of their impossible privilege yeah right where if you can buy somebody a Lamborghini or a BMW or a BMW yesterday and like not blink an eye like that's a kind of privilege that comes with a very specific kind of ignorance about the lives that people live and like maybe just like a not caring about feelings and like that's how I read Michael's other sexual partners and other clients I thought he was misreading their carelessness and that the text was leading me to believe that their carelessness was tied to their entitlement yeah and I think that's it I think that is like the story the book is telling yeah but I feel like that's missing a huge gap totally that money is often and always gendered and yeah. like the way that women utilize and use money is super duper different than the way that like money is sexualized for women. Yes. And because all capital is sexualized for women. Right. Your job, who you're with, your car. You know, maybe it is for men, but I think less so. Right. Because like you can be default dude and it's like you're already on second base. Yeah. Know? Richard Gere hired Julia Roberts. Yeah. Because he wanted to get off and he thought it was interesting. Yeah. She right? made him laugh. Stella hires Michael because she needs to better herself as a human being through sex in her mind. Yep. To be a better daughter, to be a better potential wife, to be a better whatever. Yeah. None of this is like Stella's doing this for her. No, exactly. Yeah. And I guess it just like bums me the hell out. It's a super bummer premise. It's not just a super bummer premise. I think it like the premise, I think when I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, you know, the fact that it exists, (laughs) 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 whatever you pull it out, it's like, holy shit, this is the fucking pits. 
like this is where we're at and as women we don't recognize it in other women like I wish romance novels could be kinder to other women to other women yeah I thought that was interesting about this one in particular because like it was so deeply wrapped up in class because the women who are treated kindly are Michael's five sisters his mother and his grandmother and like they're treated kindly because of then their association with Michael right there are no other women in the story other than like the antagonizing women Stella and the sisters I think Stella's mom gets a decent amount of treatment I thought at first the curvaceous receptionist I got really excited when she was first described as curvaceous I was like that's interesting but maybe the fact that she's curvaceous is irrelevant to the story maybe she's just like describing the physicality of this woman and like curvaceous is not weighted with any other kind of meaning and she's just like a nice brunette lady but no her ass is then grabbed by the villain and she like pushes his hair out of his eyes and we know that the villain is a bad lover bad man yeah what the fuck was that and it sucks if our heroine is willowy then all curvaceous women must be doing something wrong and if our heroine is curvaceous then all willowy women must be doing something wrong yeah it's a trope that just drives me up the fucking wall yeah dude and it reinforces really bad competitive ideas between women yep you know we've all heard the TED talk but does anyone actually take it to heart that we aren't competitors for male affection that this isn't a game that we should play and at it's all. not like, based on if we're curvaceous or not no and it's not based on whether how much money we make or like how smart we are or how funny we are like yeah. any of those things the way in which society deems our capital is like so mercurial yeah. and like whatever it's rude I didn't like that that was frankly my weirdest part the curvaceous receptionist and then, getting like, like, the villain, and out of nowhere out of nowhere and that the villain grabs her ass and then like she like gives him this very affectionate like oh poopoo baby even though she like saw this like display of him being sexually possessive of another woman right and like a fucking colleague yeah like and and then she's also his subordinate like, yeah everything about that was just like Ugh. but in the story the book is telling it's like weird huh I guess he doesn't really care about Stella and it's like no, no shit obviously we knew that from the outset this didn't have to happen why did you have to be mean about the curvaceous receptionist and make her seem like a fool right he passed that wine over yes I will pass the wine thank you this episode of Wellmance is brought to you by Ruza a canned rosé as well as Finkies Sparkling Chardonnay 2017 if you want to buy us a bottle of wine and you want us to toast you on our episode that's something you can do through our Patreon because all capital is sexual and this capital is especially sexy what should we toast here's a toast to freedom something they can never take away no matter what they tell you here's here's to freedom an illusion that they have given us that doesn't actually exist bitter brew freedom's just another word for nothing left, left to, to lose. lose it's so true <laughs> oh janice oh chris christopherson <sighs> their love story they had a love story oh yeah they phoned for years the only love story I've heard about Janis Joplin is in the Patty Hearst autobiography where she talks about how she saw Janis perform and she was like this incredibly powerful ethereal being and then they went out afterwards with Janis's band and then Patty took her back to her apartment and Janis just started weeping because her bassist didn't like her as much as she liked her bassist and like Janis Joplin was voted like ugliest 
Baptist man at the mm-hmm. University of Texas and stuff. And Patty wrote about how like just watching this person who could be so different in two planes of living, which really like performing is a different plane of existence. Totally, but that you could be voted in the most cruel way possible. Like that your entire femininity would be denied and then yeah. you could be this powerhouse on stage. Yeah, and then when you're not on stage, it's still all there. Exactly. And you have a crush on your fucking bassist. Mm-mm. I'm not sure if it was the bassist, but can you imagine no. the bassist? But also like that's like how hard everything that we're talking about is, right? It's like it doesn't matter if you are literally a living legend and it's like everybody knew Janice's talent at that point. Like people were clamoring for her in a very particular way. Like she could command an audience in a way that like people hadn't seen before. And that, you know, she could come off stage and weep is like a testament to exactly what we're talking about, right? Where like the... Patty Smith, not Patty Hearst. Jesus. <laughs> Patty Smith. Oh my God. Anyway, that just hit me. It's okay. Yeah. But I mean, like, that's like what we're talking about where it's like Stella's capital and like capital with a capital C. This woman is making deep six figures and, you know, nothing is enough. Like no one will leave her alone. And then it's like, well, you know, she doesn't want to be alone. And like, that's okay. And I do want to talk about the way in which this book discusses sex, because I think this is a book that does a really good job around consent, trust, and also like trauma. Yeah. And it also does a really good job around just describing sex and like all of it's like what we would characterize in this day and age as like dirty naughty little things yeah do you think this book okay erotica is erotica a book that cannot exist without the sex scenes like the story falls apart or is erotica like a question of percentages I think it's a question of percentages, but it's also like the plot is in service to the sex. Whereas like in a romance novel, like the sex serves the plot. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's the coin flip there. Yeah. So in this, like she hires him, they have this weird dinner and she's like, don't eat the lamb. And he's like, cool, order the salmon. And it's like the first time that she's like voiced a preference like Mm -hmm. out loud. And someone's been like, yeah, of course, that's reasonable. And then she's like, oh, that felt good though. Thank you. And then they go up to her room and then like she immediately locks down. And he's like, okay, well, we're not going to do anything because you are stiff as a board, uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and clearly not into this. And I'm not going to do anything. She's like, have sex with me. He's like, oh, no, though. But they work through it. Yeah, she is demanding. She's like, I don't just want you to leave like let's do this yeah power through but the way that they work through it is like he takes off his shirt and they end up cuddling and watching a movie I took that as just him being a professional exactly a professional human being who understands the limitations of a client I believe that Michael is the hero of this romance novel would have been that understanding and gentle because it's a romance novel but I totally understand it as like I kind of wish there would have been a moment where he was like blah <laughs> but I gotta do this anyway you know like there's so little of actual work yeah in this book because this book feels like sex work is unethical I think that's exactly it I think you just hit on the like missing element of like like if you want to be kind to sex work if you want to be fair to sex work talk about it as work yeah this book doesn't want to do that because it finds that idea vaguely repugnant yeah I think that's exactly like that's where it breaks like it wants to understand sex work as suffering or something um, you're forced to do or this like weird shadowy place from which light can grow you know right nobody wants to be a sex worker yeah but like he had to he He had had no other choice he didn't want to be a thief like his father which also like so he's gonna use his body which he's always had which like like his dad like conned 
people and it's like survival is survival people survive the way they know how you can't just be like this person is evil you know what I mean like, I mean his dad did defraud his mom so like that sucks that sucks that sucks yeah but it does you, suck but you don't get to be like <laughs> he defrauded the family business you don't get to be like this is different from that but not necessarily unequal like in terms of his father's relationship right his dad's Swedish his mother is Vietnamese immigrates to the United States so like there's this whole other part is of it is his father like Swedish Swedish or like white Americans saying they're Swedish you know I don't know he just says Swedish so yeah, I, I don't know either I sort of assumed like second generation but that could be a totally erroneous he could just be waspy yeah, and like see, tall and blonde I just wish like that's a lack of specificity especially with 23 and me and like all of the ancestry.com stuff white people are becoming even more culturally centric it used to just be the Scottish people oh, Scottish so the Irish. and also the Irish people mm, and Italians. like a few Germans and Ita- you know like what I mean mm-hmm. and now it's like I I'm Swedish. Mm-hmm. It's like you weren't Swedish in I'm like Norwegian. 1767, friendo. I'm Belgian. Whatever. Anyway. Like weird shit going on. It is a lot of weird shit going on. His dad is white. His mom is Vietnamese. He's biracial. That adds a whole element to this because then we have a fraudster who defrauds the family business that is her, Michael's mom's, foothold mm-hmm. into the American dream. Real quick, this note about white people committing crimes and genetic. Mm-hmm. If you're a white person, mm-hmm. look, it's a bad idea to give the government your genetic material. You're clearly a mass murderer. But if you're a white person, I think you should because this is how they're solving cold cases. Yeah, and you, and you killed all those ladies. As a white person, you are more likely than most people to be related to a serial killer. So go ahead and spit in that vial. You pay them $50 and they can figure some shit out. Yeah. I listened to a podcast today, Yo, Is This Racist? And they were talking about their frustrations with white people giving their genetic material up. But I'm like, you know what? That's white how we're going to solve give the cold up your cases. cash. Give up your spit. We need to solve some cold cases. We need to solve some cold cases. Then we know who it is. Anyway. I think my mom is more likely to be related to a serial killer than my dad. I think my mom is also more likely to be related to a serial killer than my dad. Have you spit in a tube? Sent I haven't. I sent it in and I never got a confirmation that they received it. It's weird. It's weird. Because like in my head, I'm like, okay, someone intercepted it and got like a tube of my spit. But at 23, and me can connect me to all of these people. Like, who's to say there isn't some, like, black market guy paying off the postman and I'm gonna run into my clone in 20 years? That would be weird. Wouldn't that be wild? That would be wild. And she looks like me, but 20 years younger? She's like your doppelganger and, like, 28 years younger. I'm 28 years old. To, like, suck out your life. Anyway. Harvest her organs. How long would you wait before harvesting your clone's organs? Would you harvest your clone's organs? That's such a good question. And, like, actually one that I've been thinking about a lot. I actually had this conversation with John today because it came up because of Star Trek. In Star Trek Voyager, there's a particular group of aliens who suffer this disease called the phage. And so they start weaponizing their medical technology and then colonizing other planets and taking their organs because the way that the phage affects their species is it just sends them into total system shutdown. The way that they can prevent it is by putting new organs in their bodies. And they're trying to prevent cultural collapse. They've decided their culture needs to survive and murder is fine. And this Starfleet is like aghast at this decision. They're like, we'd never do that. And I'm like, "Mm, 
your cultural imperialism is a lot like this yeah so like that's such a good question because we talked about this and like what about my life makes me special that I would need to like consume the organs of my clone yeah nothing have you seen that movie The Island obviously I've seen every movie with Ewan McGregor in it okay like here's what I think the people who live on the island are only living a half life they are living a half life like white why should they non-sexual yeah and so it's like I would feel less bad about taking a The Island's clones organs because I'm like you know what I went to Garden City High School I deserve this I deserve this more than you do Clone. Clone. And no, I'm not going to take my sibling's kidney. Ever? I'm going to take your kidney, clone. Okay. Oh, my God. Here's a question. If it's between taking your sister's kidney and your clone's kidney, is there a choice? I mean, my sister can live with a kidney. Just the one. So can your clone. So can my clone. I guess I would take my clones then. But if it's like my clone's heart, that becomes a much harder question where it's like, you're going to end this life to preserve your own. You would take a clone's heart before you took your sister's heart. Obviously. But like, would I kill myself before that became the question? No, I would not kill my, I know that about myself. You would take the clone. I would take the clone's heart. I mean, you already paid good money for it. That's the other part of it. Exactly. And it's like, they're living this shitty life on their in their all white linens they are wearing white linen it's very starched there yeah but they fight so hard to get out yeah because they know how bitching my existence is they sorry do. i'm not gonna they're just trying to take my life they are they're your doppelganger that you created and paid like five million dollars for yeah they're trying to take my life if i die they occupy my space in the world that absolutely one, not that was one of the questions that was never answered on the island like if you did die out there because the clone doesn't have memory of your life no so it can't take your space if you're in a tragic car accident and can't be revived no no it's not like that it's like it's like shelved yeah exactly this took a really weird turn you know i just i would i would take my clone's heart i don't know it would depend on what was going on in my life i think even if i didn't pay for it even if someone was like good news we have a clone I would be like, don't tell me anything else. Just give me the heart. Cool. I'm glad that like uh, <laughs> your life fight is so strong. Yeah. Um, and, like, I want to be next to you on a sinking ship and I want to be next to you in the apocalypse. And like, like, I feel like you would really hard scrapple out of that. And then they're like, your clone has escaped and is fighting for survival. I'd be like, I'm buying a gun. <laughs> I will kill my clone myself to get my heart. Do you know how (laughs) shitty my life is? And I would still be like, this very existence that I'm living in right now, where I owe a lot of money in taxes Mm -hmm. and I'm not getting any bonuses from the job that I was promised I would get. And my cat can't poop regular. You're back. I'm not, but he's so lovely. (laughs) I would still be like, I will fucking kill that linen clad bitch. Here it is, listeners. (laughs) Isabel wants to sit next to Morgan on all of the life rafts and in all of the apocalypse scenarios unless I find out that my blood type is a match and then I don't want to sit on that boat with you. I'm an O negative. Oh, thank God. I'm B positive. (laughs) (laughs) Say it. Say it. We are what we are on our insides. Universal donor. No, wait. I'm not a universal donor. No, you are. O neg is a universal donor. Really? Yeah. And then AB positive is universal receiver. Congratulations, AB positive. Mm -hmm. I think I'm O negative. That's pretty good. John's own egg, too. He likes to donate blood, and I'm all like, cool, they don't want mine. Yeah, they stopped taking my blood because it didn't clot quickly enough the last time I gave my blood. Fascinating. I was in my high school gym, and they shouted out, like, we've got a bleeder, <laughs> and, like, held up my arm and stuff. I was sipping my juice, eating my cookie, and I felt, like, really hot. 
And I was like, this feels really hot. And the person like wheeled over suddenly and like looked, like lifted up my arm and was like, we've got a bleeder. <laughs> it stopped bleeding. And they're like, if this starts bleeding again, you need to go to the hospital because you can bleed out. Oh my God. And I was like, I tried to get out of work because of it. And then I didn't do it successfully. I think John's dad, my father-in-law also has not a clotting disorder, but like clotting disorder light because he's also a bleeder. But like this one time when he was giving blood, cause he's O negative as well. They like actually nicked the artery and he's a doctor. So he knew almost right away that they'd done that. And he goes home to brush his teeth and then comes back to the emergency room and is like, I need a very specific stitch at this point in my arm to continue living. <laughs> they didn't want to have bad breath. And I was like, you're going to brush your teeth for the emergency room, but not for the nurse who was taking your blood at the donation station. That's real. That's so real. The guy who taught me how to ride horses and trained actually a lot of the horses that I have had, the two horses I've had throughout my life. He went to a horse show and had a stroke and he <gasps> smoked a cigarette, drank a Diet Coke, showed the horse and then went to the emergency room. Wow, that that's, that's a, a vasoconstrictor real, though. That's a real life cowboy. That is a real life cowboy who's like, I'm going to smoke the cigarette. I'm going to cut off the blood vessels so like nothing else happens. So that's what worked? I mean, the cigarette, that's a good idea. It's a vasoconstrictor. Holy shit. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It also could have been, depending on the stroke, could have made it worse. But like... I mean, he showed a horse afterwards, so I bet it helped. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It kept him on his game. <laughs> the blood where it needed to be. Oh my God, that's so interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. This is a sexy book. Sex teens were good. Mm-hmm. There's this one scene where they're making out, they're in her apartment and they're having sex on the bed and then he sees something in her face and he's like, oh, this is too personal for you. And then like flips her over and like does a doggy yeah. style and she's like, this makes me so much more comfortable. I can like be in it more yeah. because you're not seeing all of my oh emotions my run across my face. And I was like, oh. That's good. I really love that. They don't talk about doggy style a lot in romance novels. They don't, but this was a really good scene. This was a really good one. And I was like, this is so great because it like gives you space to be self-conscious about something else. Yeah. It's like, I'm not so self-conscious about the doggy style. I'm self-conscious about too many emotions running across my face. Yeah, it was really interesting. But of course... The first time they truly make love, it's in missionary position and they're making eye contact on his couch. She's the first woman he's ever let in there. Into his precious apartment. His Can we talk about his sanctuary that sounds like really accurate representation of every shitty dude on Tinder's bachelor apartment. pad? Yeah, like a brown suede couch, a lot of DVDs. A flat screen TV. With a lot of DVDs, an unmade bed. Free weights. And a punching bag. I thought it was a really accurate representation, but it was a very affectionate mm-hmm. description. It was a very affectionate space. description of that space. And I was like, whoever wrote this has not been in one of those apartments recently. Or like, <laughs> has a very particular fondness for like that time in their life where they were yeah. seeing a lot of bachelor pads. And I was like, this is an interesting fondness. This is, an, this is a cool take on that. Houses in this were weird. I would actually, that's a really good place. Yeah. So like his bachelor plaid, which obviously smells like spunk and like nasty shag carpet, suede couch. It's like not good also, stuff to clean. His cousin is teasing him and asks him if a cushion on the couch is his cum cushion. And he's like, yeah. And then he's like, oh, which like I want to walk you through a how the cushion. concept of a cum cushion would come to exist. Someone masturbates onto a cushion and that cushion exclusively. That's what a cum cushion would be if such a thing 
had ever existed outside of fantasy. You can't clean that. There was that guy on Reddit who had the cum box. I don't necessarily believe he was really coming into that box. I kind of think he made like a gross box and was like, this is my cum box. But whatever. Maybe men come exclusively onto one couch cushion in their house. I don't. That is not. I don't believe it. I'm like, that's not my experience of men coming. So that's his bachelor pad. Her house has three pieces of furniture. It has her bed, a piano, a Steinway grand piano, a Steinway grand piano and a lamp. And she's lived in her house for five years. There's no dining room table. There's no couch. There's no television. There's nothing. And like, we're supposed to understand that her house is entirely functional for the function of her sleeping. And that's fine. And playing piano. She does play piano. Yeah. Those are the two things that she does in her home. Everything else she does at the office. And I was like, this seems like a lot. So the author talks about how she created this concept in order to solve the problem of the attractive reverse pretty woman Mm -hmm. and then as she was writing realizes that she shares a lot of traits of someone who is on the spectrum and then eventually seeks out that diagnosis for herself you kind of see as the book goes on how it gets more and more it gets more and more intense like it gets more of itself like it begins to feed on itself in a very particular way like when we first meet Stella she's with her parents outside and she's clearly uncomfortable like we're deeply rooted in her perspective which feels neuro-non-typical at the outset yeah but then as we're like introduced into her wider world it becomes like I don't want to say a caricature because it's dealt with with more depth and emotion than that but like there were parts of it where I'm like neuro-non-typicals of my acquaintance at least understand more than this they would have more furniture than that yeah here's the thing that furniture thing gets set up early in the book I actually feel the opposite I feel like the book gets more whole with its depiction of what it's like to live as a neuro non-typical but there are these like caricature things that set her up her specifically tailored clothing we hear like she's very picky about her clothes to the point where her tailor might be like upset with her and then at the end we realize like she just likes a French seam yeah which a lot of people do or like she doesn't like wool because it's itchy and like the very first thing I thought of was like I have this lovely wool sweater that I love to wear my sister saw me in it and she's like you wearing a full long sleeve thing underneath that otherwise like how are you living in it it's because yeah. my sister has very sensitive skin so she could never wear a wool sweater but yeah. like not a function that yeah. makes her a neuro-non-typical it's but just that's that, presented as a fact that would make someone a neuro-non-typical exactly. early in the book and exactly. also but also this idea that they would only have like three pieces of furniture one of which is a lamp <laughs> is <laughs> really intense yeah and like no books and like here's a woman who's also said early on in the book that she loves K-pop and she loves K-dramas and like she's watching that shit on her laptop in her bed no she's not yeah not with the kind of money that she makes exactly and also okay one of the things that's going to age badly with this book is it's super specific K-drama references very specific also I saw a picture of that guy who our hero specifically looks like meh he's no Michael Chin I mean I like K-dramas too but sure we all do I mean we're on a roll romance podcast so I think that kind of goes without saying like I read and I like K-dramas yeah cool (laughs) I also eat and breathe oxygen (laughs) yeah like I've come this far I don't feel like I need to explain myself any further I just yeah I did not 
like the super specific references, super specific pop culture references come across as like, it's just not good writing. Mm -mm. It's like saying Coca-Cola. It's like, you can just say Coke. Yeah. We know what it is. Yeah. Tell me what he looks like. Like, we don't all get this reference. Right. So he's a super hot biracial man. Yeah. Cool. I did love the reference where he's like, he's like an Adonis. He's like a dolphin coming out of the water. And it was like, oh, you've also seen Ali Wong's stand-up special about making love to an Asian man. Where she like describes that they're like hairless. So it's like making love to a dolphin. I was like, this seems real specific referencing to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, it does. And also that's an essentialization. Yeah. Here's what I do like. That first sex scene where he finds out about her other three partners where she locks up they basically like rutted on top of her and he has this like immediate sort of like sweeping view of what her sexual history is and he's angry that people haven't understood her nonverbal consent and so then this discussion of what the spectrum of consent actually looks and feels like was fascinating to me and like the deft and care of what not saying no but not saying yes either could look like inside of a relationship that was beginning to build on trust but like was essentially transactional but he's like super sexually jealous and possessive I didn't like like that stuff and physically violent I did like it when he beat Philip in the face I don't I like it when a douchebag gets a punch. You really do. Because they're sexually attracted to the same woman you're sexually attracted to? That's not a good reason. That's not a good reason to punch somebody, but like Philip was like trying to physically restrain then her. Then why didn't he just pull him off? Why did he punch him in the face? Because a man! Exactly. It's stupid. You're right. It's fucked up and stupid. It's wrong that I like it. It is wrong that you like it. It's true. It's wrong. I've been culturally trained to like shows of dominance like yeah, that. Yeah, you're like, this is how I know that someone really cares about me. They're willing to break their fist on someone else's face. They're willing to behave in a physically violent manner. How do you think that works out? It doesn't. It, it never doesn't. does. It never because does. Because if you're able to justify physical violence mm-hmm. in that way, no. you're able to justify physical and emotional violence in plenty of other ways right. as a way of expressing affection. Right. Physical violence is not an acceptable way to express affection in any context. Or emotion of any kind, really. No. You know, if someone is so mad that they punch a wall, that's a person that I can't work with. I was going to say, if someone is expressing an idea that is politically, policy-wise, like, repugnant, and you want to punch them, I understand that. I'm more willing to understand, like, punching a Richard Spencer. Oh, sure. Punch Nazis every day. (laughs) Punch Nazis every day. But don't punch someone because you feel affection towards another person. That's putting bad money before good. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the shades of possession. That's just you being violent in your affection. Not to be a cheese nerd ball which I am so it doesn't matter but like there's this thing and at me about this where Yoda says that possession is the shadow of greed in relationships yeah that's exactly it right where it's like if you want to possess someone so much that the idea of another human being looking at them deserves a violent reaction from you that's not love that's possession yeah and that's not even possession that's greed so let's talk about what it would look like otherwise because I think a lot of people would say woo 
Here's how it looks if you do it a different way. Like an adult. Someone is flirting with your partner. Can you blame them? You no. like your partner too. Shouldn't you feel flattered that another human being outside of you is like, hey, this person too has the cultural capital to like be worthwhile in my time. But don't even be flattered because it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the person you're with. And if your partner flirts back with that other person, of course they would. They're being made to feel good. And it doesn't mean anything. Right. You know, obviously, like, don't forget who's taking you home and in whose arms you're going to be. be. But also, maybe... You can dance if you want. You can dance if you want to. I mean, there are people who are non-monogamous and there's this, like, weird backlash lately to non-monogamy that's like, it's because people can't settle down. It's because everyone feels entitled to newer, better dick or pussy. It's like, maybe monogamy isn't the best thing for, like, 100% of the folks. This idea that, like, non-monogamy looks like sleeping around is also ridiculous. If you're going to be jealous of someone, why not be jealous of your partner because they're so fascinating and funny and brilliant that someone else wants to talk to them? Like, you know, if you're going to be jealous of anybody, like, don't make it about your possession of that person and by their traits. Also, jealousy, like, why does it even have to be jealousy? Why can't it be joy? Like, here it is, like, your partner's receiving validation from an outside source. But also not validation even, just like, this is happening because of course it is. Yeah. Weird thing. I love it when people flirt with John. That is weird. That is weird. Because I'm always like, yeah, you do. You flirt with that guy. You do that. Because A, I don't want to get too personal, but like my husband doesn't understand when people are flirting with him. So it's like super adorable when somebody sits down next to him and he's like, hey, how are you? And I love that moment. It used to happen a lot more when I was bartending, but it's a moment where it's like, oh, this is. It's like, it's totally outside of me. It doesn't belong to me and it shouldn't and it doesn't. And the fact that it doesn't is good. And like, it's a nice reminder of individuation. Yes. My choices are good because someone else would also make that choice as long as you're not like that. Right. I really feel like joy almost feels like too much. Joy almost feels like on the verge of... Like something else. I mean, like, it's just like... Like swinging hard the other direction. Right. I don't feel an angry animus. And I feel like jealousy and envy are words that have like a particular kind of emotional animus as this book very explicitly decides. Yeah. And so like jealousy or like... Like that feeling that you get with like your backup or like your heckles rise or like any of those kinds of feelings. I think like those are all very natural relations and they feel like jealousy. But like there's another thing too that like maybe isn't joy, but like might be like akin to like pride or like yeah. kind of just like I see you liking this person and I get why you're doing it and it makes me happy. Whenever people also fetishize like physical violence as an expression of affection, I am immediately skeptical of their actual experience with physical violence. Oh, totally. Oh my God. Anybody who is like lionizing this has never seen a fist fight break. Yeah. Has never seen like what a fight really looks looks like. like. Yeah, for sure. That's the other thing that I have to remind myself because when I'm reading it in the safety of a book, I do like it. Or like, like watching it in the safety of Bridget Jones's diary. Yeah, I I do love that scene, except <laughs> when they the break through the window. To- the fight scene is set to Raining Men in Bridget Jones's diary, which is outstanding. But it's broken when they break through the glass, which is immediately when it's like, 
it has stakes. Like somebody could have really been hurt. And like, what's great about that film is like, that's the point that it decides to end this super silly fight. I don't think it has to do with other people getting hurt that they made that choice. I think yeah. it's English propriety. Both of those men <laughs> having their sense of English propriety is broken, like shattered. Yeah, that's good. Okay, I believe that. But like, the thing is like, I agree with you. Like if you've seen an actual fist fight between two dudes who want to harm one another break out. Or two women. Or, or two women. And a woman. Anybody. It's horrific it like actually just like is so scary scary physical violence is scary and it should be it is you know i like the scene in bridget jones's diary but i think it's because i can see it and i'm like oh this isn't this isn't real this isn't what it's really like but if i read it in a book I am immediately transported back to moments where I saw physical fights break out. That's interesting. Especially because like in romance novels, I think like capital L literature, I feel more like that. But in romance novels, I still feel safe enough where like people still make confessions in the rain. So that seems like earnest and silly in the same way that like somebody would punch someone else. People also get repeatedly raped on a pirate ship. I don't know how anyone feels safe in Rome. <laughs> Joanna Lindsay constantly stealing the rug. But also like other contemporary books or like books from our current moment that are racist, sexist, even like consensual sex isn't really consensual or it's degrading. Yeah, romance have is a very particular conservative underbelly that I think like romance Twitter doesn't want to acknowledge in the same way that it like truly exists. But like, but like even this book, it's degrading to the woman who bought him the BMW. Oh, like God, female degradation is everywhere. It's hard to feel safe at all. I think like that's one of the things romance feels like a genre that's like on sand rather than solid ground. Yeah. But like, especially since a genre that like turns over so quickly we're talking about authors who can put two maybe even three books out in a year Melody Johnson like three books this year I was talking to my partner's mother and she has a co-worker who's self-publishing and her co-worker who's self-publishing is like I have to have three books ready to go before I can publish one and I was like that's exactly what Melanie did mm-hmm. like it's a lot it's, it's a, a lot but like that also means that like this is a genre that moves really quickly and so I think like in one of those ways it was really responsive to me too and like in a very particular way this book felt like it didn't necessarily have me too in mind but like wasn't ignorant of it either yeah and like that move is really particular in a lot of really interesting ways to me in the genre but like also it's worth talking about that this is a genre that has a very conservative anchor attack anchor is right it's not an angle it's, it's not no. a lens Mm-mm. it is the anchor you were going to end up in a hetero probably or like hetero adjacent monogamous committed relationship with a person who you're then gonna die with happy for now or happily ever after but like that's not even what i'm talking about but it's happily ever after like happy for now is something that we've extrapolated no that's actually a thing in contemporary romance that's what they call it the hfn because they like happily for now have their sequels right because like you can potentially then have a heroine who's like oh that first guy was great for two years but then he wasn't great for all of these reasons that relationships really fall apart and like that's the happily for now it doesn't have to end in a wedding it doesn't have to end in a baby it doesn't have to end in those things that's a happily for now happily 
Labor after is different. And like you and I are going to have that discussion. But what I'm talking about when I talk about the anchor is the actual conservative writers. That's the basis of this genre existing. No, the thing that you I'm, don't think I want to put a pin in that. But the thing that I'm actually talking about when I talk about this anchor is the people who write romance who are actually misogynists, who believe that like women are subservient to men, who are writing particular kinds of novels that then are also cashing in on cultural things about women and men and sexuality in ways that like then color the rest of the genre at all and like happily ever after is complicit in that yeah but what i'm talking about is like actual women who don't like women and write non-consensual sexual relationships i'm like do you think this is a book that doesn't like women the kiss quotient this is a book that explicitly likes women and implicitly dislikes certain women so isn't that the same as disliking women because can't we easily come up with a rationalization for Eliza and why she does what she does of course we can and the book explicitly does what is its rationalization for Eliza? that she's entitled that's not kind I mean like rationalization to be like we can come up with an understanding of Eliza. oh rather that than that book, she's the villain yeah ra- the, as this like a book function of the novel yeah that this book does not provide no because Eliza is used as a device yes but this is considered a progressive text in the genre for sure and it uses another woman and her inferiority to the heroine Mm -hmm. as a device yep it is inherently ranking us Mm mm-hmm the reason why it's progressive is because of its race. It's neuro non-typical. Like it's hitting a bunch of like, boxes. This is the fucking original sin of romance is that not every woman can be a heroine. Listeners, I know that you can't see that, but I'm snapping. The original <laughs> sin of romance is that not every woman can be a heroine. Holy shit. I think we just had a breakthrough. Yeah, Morgan, you just like, <laughs> don't say we, you did that on your own. Like you fucking did it. The original sin of romance is that not every woman can be a heroine. Because I tell you what, Lisa is not the second book in this series. No, no, she is not. No, she is not. Which then do you know there means was a time when a villain could have got been to redeemed. Be the hero. It was the devil in winter, and it's a man. <laughs> it's a man can be redeemed. Yeah. Women cannot yeah. be redeemed in the same way. No, and I to me we're always harder anchor. on women. To me, that's the anchor of the genre for sure. Your anchor is much heavier than mine. Boy, I think we really you fucking rung a bell on that one. I felt that one in all of my ribs. <laughs> the original sin of romance is not every woman can be a heroine and so I think that's made clear to me by a book that is otherwise you know checking all the diversity boxes which god they love to say diversity and it's broadest and generalist terms it does feel a little neoliberal in that way mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what does diversity even mean if we're doing this one of the things that I wanted to talk about in terms of this book is that it's a book that really loves food which seems a little petty now that we've discovered the original sin of romance I loved the discussions of food. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Microwaving plastic. That house scene. Devastating. Devastating! When she refuses to eat the food because it was microwaved in plastic. plastic. Because it's poison because of BPA. Yeah. I loved that scene. Also, I didn't understand why Michael, in that moment, instead of talking Stella through it, chose to like double down on Stella's thing. That's not helpful. Not at all. Which showed like Michael's ignorance. Like I like that this book was like, Michael, you're showing your ass. Yeah. Yeah. He was just like, my girlfriend doesn't want to eat it. She's right. 
Yeah, I was like, Meh. which makes sense because he really puts Stella on such a pedestal. He's like, oh, she's so brilliant. She's so great. I love her so much. I can never be with her, which is the not obstacle. And then whenever he goes to take care of his mom, and then he walks out, and Stella's already left. It's like, no, die. You can't have it both ways this time. Exactly. I really liked that, and like, I also liked that like Stella felt so bad about her social faux pas that she didn't understand in the moment that she wiki housed to apologize. And I was like. That's so real, though. I'm like the other day at work. I googled what to write in a sympathy card. Yeah, I wiki howed how to like you know write like I fucked up. I'm sorry. You know, like the emotional stuff is really hard. In the same way that like, you know, in health class, they didn't talk about female orgasm or masturbation. There was never a class on like you fucked up, take ownership in a very particular way. And like she wiki howed it. But it's also like in my moment, I was like, oh, shit, what do I write in this sympathy card? And instead of like really sitting with it and thinking about it, I just Googled it. Which feels like a condition of our current time. For sure. But it can like, like make everyone closer to neuroatypical. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think the accessibility of answers. I think that's true. But I also think we're living in a time where it's like, I mean, I was growing up in a time where nobody talked about miscarriage. And now it's like, yeah, I'm of an age where many of my friends are like trying to start families. And like one of the things about starting a family is that you were probably going to have a miscarriage. Yeah. And like, what do you write in a car that says, hey, I'm sorry that you wanted to be pregnant and didn't work out this time. Yeah. It's like, I love you. I mean, that actually sounds really good. That's what I put in the card. As someone who has never had a miscarriage, so maybe don't take my advice. But yeah, it sounded really good. Thank you. Because I, to me, I'm like, like, of course it hurts. And of course it's upsetting. It shouldn't be a reflection of the trajectory of your life. Like this should not completely change how you understand yourself. Right. Or like Whereas your like body. the death of a parent is... Yeah, I totally are like the death of a child. A sibling. Yeah. You know, and like, I think we're in a moment now where like the access to the experience is now talked about, but like the language hasn't quite caught up or like the desire to like be there is there, but like the ability to be there isn't caught up in the same way. I don't know. I have lots of feelings about like how like modern life is like both disassociating and like whatever. HBO has recently reentered my life. And I watched A Dangerous Son, mm. that documentary. And they made this point of like how five years ago, if someone had cancer, you would whisper about it. Yeah. And now people have these huge fundraisers and everyone's standing up on podiums talking about their experience. Yeah, save with the cancer. tatas. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like with mental stuff, people are still whispering about it. Yep. And no one seems to see the connection. Right. Or even just like the fucking connections of like grief. This book has a real fascination with Asian popular culture of all kinds. Yes. Laughing into the wind, I looked it up and mm-hmm. it's a Chinese historical television series. Very good. They talk about K-dramas. Mm-hmm. They talk about different kinds of martial arts. Mm-hmm. He does kendo. Yep. He is Vietnamese, but they go to a Thai place mm-hmm. and he confidently orders something about like pan-Africanism mm-hmm. and about pan-Asianism. But also specifically South Asian, but like also then like Japan gets worked in there with the kendo. <laughs> China. That was interesting to me about this book. This book felt like, oh, you've heard that like Asian men aren't attractive and aren't good at sex and have small dicks. Let me tell you what. Yeah. Did they talk about his pe- Yeah, they talked about it being good. Yeah. And that he's like a sex Adonis. And so like in this way, like I think like the fact that this book came out the same year that Crazy Rich Asians came out is like also very kind of particular. I watched Crazy Rich Asians. I thought it would be funnier. Rather than as like pretty intense as it was. Yeah, it's really intense. Yeah. BTW 
Dubs, I super duper loved the film. Loved the movie more than I liked the book, which is very wow. strange for me. Doesn't happen often. I love Constance Wu. I love her. Ah. I'm fresh off the boat. She's so funny. Her Stephen King book club episode. I was like, my mom did that. There's literally nothing about Constance Wu that isn't delightful. <gasps> oh my God, delightful. going to Costco. There's so much like 90s mom stuff in that show that I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Gone. One of my good friends is Afghani and she had this like wonderful conversation with me recently where she's like, the difference between a me culture and a we culture where it's like, you would for sure not marry a person that your parents are like not for you i would for sure kill my clone <laughs> you would for sure kill your clone like that's the difference between a me and a we right you're in it to win it and like you know there are other cultures that are like winning it is for the good of the tribe you know what i mean and like that's like very different and like one of the things that i think this book immediately introduces is that the me is subservient to the we both in terms yeah. of stella and in michael yeah there's this like portrayal of the sacrifices he made for his family as being like sensible and also something that he can grow from as opposed to something that's like holding him back. One thing that I really appreciate about this book is that it recognized the fact that the only thing holding him back is fucking money. Yeah, it's not his family. It's not his culture. It's not his work ethic. It's not anything else. It's the availability money. of money in our broken healthcare system. Yeah, literally. Those are the reasons he becomes a male escort. And I think like that's really great. And I think it's really deft in that we like, especially in the West and especially in romance that loves to trade in dukes where it's like holy shit we love to fetishize capital but we don't talk about the consequences and yes. this was a book that and even our heroine yep. who is our duke it turns out she's like uh, I just have a trust fund I actually don't make that much money I make a lot of money I can live comfortably which is the most rich person totally in it's the like world that's today. deep six figures yeah yeah, yeah yeah but she like gives up her whole trust fund and she says isn't that what you should do with money like that and it's like yes, yes it is it what is. you should do with money like that good choice listen y'all we've got to stop spending money on amazon because his wife's already gotten her half yeah we should indie bound or no bound or go to the library oh my god i love the library did you know that you can i didn't know this you can return any chicago public library book to any chicago public library branch i did know that where you checked it out i asked them today at harold washington yeah i also didn't know until this very fucking election i feel very ignorant you can vote at any of the early polling places it doesn't yeah. have to be in your district go to the mega polling super polling is that what they call it yeah, the super polling stations in the loop and i was like i don't do that yeah you gotta go early though because <sighs> i love early voting post early voting which is like the only kind of voting you should do in chicago because it's so fucking easy it's so easy and they give you candy they don't give you candy on polling day on actual voting day there's no an candy. actual voting day you've got to roll up to where you're going. Mm. Literally, my boyfriend, born and raised in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I'm used to voting in Kansas. Mm-hmm. I bring two forms of identification, three pieces of mail, a private mailer and a public mailer and a grab bag because I'm like ready to prove that I live in my district. And, and in the house that you're registered in. In the house that I'm registered in. I know my ID doesn't have my current address on it. It's got all this like supplementary stuff. And I like roll up and I'm like, here are my forms of identification. And they're like, okay, great. You're already registered. It's totally fine. You did it online. Go through. Brandon did not complete his register.
industry update whenever we moved. And they're like, literally, you can show us an email that says the address in it. I could have registered here today this second. You can still motherfucking vote in Chicago. So that's what Brandon was doing. He was registering there that second and they saw his ID and they're like, do you still live at this address? He was like, no. And they're like, can you show us your current address? And he was like, what do you need? And they were like, anything. I could have emailed him just our address and they would have been like, great. Thank you so much. Yeah. And at my polling 33rd district. Yeah. And in my district, they can do it in Chinese and Spanish. Yeah, they could do it in um, Spanish in my district and Polish. Nice. And I love it. I like they got the translators there and they're like, do you need this translating service to walk you through the steps? And like everything about how easy they're making democracy feels like the future I was promised by the fucking Sesame Street folks and by Mr. Rogers. I'm like, However, this is what people you said. outside of Chicago are going to say, oh, yeah, that's the Chicago machine at work. They'll get anybody to vote. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe, they will. They'll maybe. get anyone to vote. Maybe anyone imagine, should vote. Yeah, imagine maybe that. anyone should vote. Imagine that. Imagine that world. If you're determined enough to vote twice, God bless, because even as easy as it was for me to vote, I would never do it twice. Oh, my God. I know. I had to wait in line for like 26 minutes in the machine and like I had to vote for all those judges and I'm like Jesus oh my god (sighs) anyway sexiest bit actually coitus interruptus whenever she's having sex with him at his place and they've done lots of foreplay as this book is very good at and then she turns around and assumes the position not on all fours but like bending over and he describes looking at her pussy and also like the general insistence on using that term throughout the book sexiest part for me how about you i loved the scene in the hotel room that night where she's like had her very first freak out and he just shows up with his shirt unbuttoned and he's standing in the hotel bathroom doorway just leaning against it like this is the way that like he just takes up space and like you can see him through her eyes but you can also see him then again through the mirror he's just a very attractive man being like hey you want to go snuggle and watch some kung fu and i was like i do oh my god i do forever for sure that was super sexy. I also like, we talked about this where like they're in her apartment and he's just like, oh, you don't want to look at my face? Zoom, zoom, zoom. He's so physical with her. Like he's like kind of throwing her around a lot and she's like being thrown around a lot. Yeah. I kind of like that. It's like, don't look at me. I'm like, cool. Weirdest part for you. My weirdest part is Philip, the antagonist dude who's like, you need to have sex to be a real woman. Slash, I'm going to slap the receptionist who's curvaceous on the ass. and Pinched like her, just yeah, lowered his hand and grabbed just, her ass. He's terrible. And the idea that he was ever going to be a viable candidate of courtship was laughably one dimensional in a way that was like, this is never going to work anyway. Why is this happening? This is dumb. Yeah. It was not a good device. I mean, I've touched on my the way I feel about Eliza and how yep. she's treated. I've also kind of touched on this, but the things our character gets hung up on. But I think that really it's the book getting hung up on these things about the character, like skin sensitivity or sensitivity to textures. So one of the things we learn about her is that she prefers a French seam, which is like a non-obtrusive seam. And in order to get over this, she cuts up her clothes so that she can feel the seams. What a silly thing to do. And like, what a weird raising of stakes. 
because a French seam is so much a thing that it has its own national identity. Good point. That is meant to represent just like good tailoring. Mm -hmm. Good, comfortable tailoring. Comfortable tailoring for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Like if you can afford French seams, go for it. If you can live without them, live without them. But that was really a class question rather than a neurodiversity uh, question. And so I think like that's the weirdest part of this whole book where it's like the questions of class and privilege get really convoluted. Yeah. I mean, she could live that comfortably like and that insistently just on her own trust fund. Right. Just as like a particular human being. Yeah. Like she didn't have to be a neuro-non-typical for that. Yeah. And so it like points to this thing, which is like being on the spectrum isn't actually like a disorder to a point. It's just like a matter of neurodiversity. Like some people are different from others in the way they react. And like, of course, it's acknowledged as like a clinically significant way, but it's really just a way of us making the world more legible is how we understand it now. And it's not necessarily, you know, a death sentence at this point, it's really like a matter of like how can our world be made to adapt and like maybe one of the ways is like we should all have shirts with french seams which like we should all have shirts with french seams they're so much more comfortable yeah the problem is is that they're harder to make and so right. they're a little bit more expensive but also we don't pay the fair exactly exactly anyway. we don't pay a fair wage for clothing yeah so that's where it's at like the problems in this book aren't actually so much about neurodiversity like her life would be so much simpler if we were a more economically flat world yep that's one of my weirdest parts I think that is the weirdest part. Yeah, but I think like class and romance is hard. Yeah. I think we've been like working through this idea of toxic femininity for so long that like, and we've talked about it, but I think this is a question we should dive into more. And we will. Because one of our brilliant Instagram comments was like, I think Fifty Shades of Grey is important because it made billionaire boys a whole thing again. And I'm like, oh yeah, it did. Oh yeah, it did. And like, what does it mean to like create a duke in the modern era? Right. He's a billionaire. Yeah. I think these are all really, really good questions that we'll be continuing to dive into. I also want to remind listeners that we are now going to go forward into the summer of romance's original sin, which is not all women can be heroines. And with that, loosen your stays, but never your principles. Mwah! Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week.